It's Baxi's Musical Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Baxi's Musical Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about, among other things, the amazing and influential career of David Bowie with a guy who has just written a book about David Bowie called Bowie at 75, author Martin Popoff. You know, over the last couple of years, I've had to read a number of books, and I haven't had to do that since college. And if you look at my college transcripts from back then, you could easily make the case that I wasn't reading too many books back then either. But if you jump ahead 38 years, things are very different today. And now I'm reading books like it's my job, probably because it is. The difference is now... There are books I'm actually excited to get into, and this happens to be one of them. And when I heard there was going to be a new David Bowie biography coming out, I thought, great, I've already read a bunch of them. I love David Bowie, and I've certainly interviewed enough people on this podcast who either knew David Bowie, played with David Bowie, were produced by David Bowie, or were just heavily influenced by the guy. But then when I realized who compiled the book and what this book was going to be about, I knew that I had to track down my guest today music journalist Martin Popoff. Martin Popoff isn't just a guy who occasionally writes about music. He's a critic, an educator, a podcaster, and an author who has released more than 115 books, including 20 just on heavy metal alone. With an estimated more than 7,500 album reviews to his credit, Martin Popoff is arguably one of the most prolific music critics in history. His knowledge and passion for music is astounding, which he shows every week in his History of Five Songs podcast. His latest release is a stunning graphic biography highlighting the top 75 moments of David Bowie's influential career, Bowie at 75. When I tell you that this is one of the most gorgeously put-together rock biographies that I have ever seen, I am not yanking your chain. This book is phenomenal. And if you're a fan of David Bowie, I totally recommend it. It's absolutely essential. And so it's a pleasure to speak to my guest today, podcaster, critic, and music journalist, Martin Popoff on Baxi's Musical Podcast. Hey, Mike, how are you? Good, Martin. How are you doing? Good, good. Great to talk to you. And yeah. I appreciate you taking the time out to do something like this. It's, it's pretty awesome. I'm not that busy. <laughs> what are you talking about? You're the busiest. You know, I, I, I got a lot of stuff coming out, but. Um, you know, it's it's a lot of stuff that's been written a long time ago, and currently I've, I've really got not a lot in the pipeline. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I got to tell you, I, w- I was really excited to talk to you today because, you know, the more I, I dug into, you know, your work and uh, your podcast and, and all the things you do, I kept saying to myself, oh, make sure you ask him about this or, you know, make sure you ask him about that. And it's it's just amazing that one guy could be responsible for working on 115 books. I don't even know if I've read 115 books in my lifetime. So I, I applaud you. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I mean, when it's your full-time job, you, you can get, you can get a lot done. I mean, it might seem like <laughs> a lot, but uh, when it is your full-time job, because most people, it's not their full-time job. It certainly has been for you. I, I got my copy of, uh, of Bowie at 75 in, okay. in the mail a few weeks ago. I, ne- I needed a hand truck to bring it into the house. It was, it was so damn heavy. I, I have to say, and I and I really, really mean this, in spite of its weight, this has got to be the most amazingly well-packaged graphic biography I've ever seen for for anybody. Cool. 
I am so impressed with this book. I, yeah, I've been a Bowie fan for, yeah, I mean, since I was a little kid and, and seeing him on television, thinking, oh, my God, this guy's the coolest guy I've ever seen in my life. But then to see a book done with so much care and attention and the, and the, 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 the graphics of this thing, it's such an impressive, beautiful piece of work. Yeah, thanks. I mean, it's it's a pretty cool project. I mean, the the neat thing about this book is that, um, and I've done a, a number of books for this publisher like this, where um, there was no other way I was ever going to do a Bowie book. I mean, my usual books, I've interviewed the artists like 20, 25 times and uh, various people a bunch more times to do a wordy book on a band. But, uh, but this concept, it wasn't my concept. This was the publisher's concept. So the idea was, uh, was go away and come up with 75 career milestones or highlights, right. And just write about them. So it's not an interview book, which is, which is great. And that's why I was able to do it. And that's why when we did the album by album series, I was able to do a book on Pink Floyd and ACDC and Queen and stuff, because those are other bands. I've got a few ACDC interviews, but other, those other bands, no. So, so that was a whole different concept that, that didn't mean I had to interview the band itself. So yeah, very cool concept, but not my concept. You broke his career down into, into 75 points, but they're all separated into six parts. You know, Bowie's the, the pop singer, the rock star, the musician and the showman, the rock icon. And, and the artist, what, what I find is so interesting about David Bowie and the closest I've ever gotten to me, I actually met him for like five to 20 seconds. <laughs> right. And it, it, interestingly enough, and I know you're a fan of Adrian Ballou, this, this is something that, that when I interviewed him, I told him about this story. We were at Summerfest in Milwaukee. This goes back it was right after uh, Adrian Ballou had released his uh, Young Lions album. And uh, he had done a song with David Bowie, Pretty Pink Rose, which is a great, great song. Bowie was going to be performing at this at this festival. And uh, we wanted to interview him, so we approached him. And we're probably five feet away from the guy. And I think he was talking to Adrian at the time. <laughs> and we asked, you know, would you mind doing an interview? And he said, well, let me ask you. I'll do it, but only if your radio station is playing Pretty Pink Rose from Adrian Ballou. And we made the mistake of being honest and saying no. <laughs> and so... Wow. In, in, a, in a way of, of him showing you know, the kind of loyalty he had to his friends, he didn't grant the interview. And I've never been, I, I've never respected such rejection before. <laughs> you had to, yeah. But, you know, you're talking about, you know, the, the chameleon part of his, of his career. What always impressed me was that he was two or three steps ahead of everybody else. And that takes a real talent that's almost undefinable. It, you, you, you can't teach someone how to do that. Yeah, and I think that's because of a respect for creativity. I mean, he was just always following the muse and he was always so enthusiastic and aggressive about creativity that he's always searching out, you know, collaborators to work with. Um, so yeah, that, that, I guess, yeah, it's interesting. I never really thought about it that way, but yeah, one step ahead uh, and, and one place, well, he was, he was in on glam on the ground floor. Um, but then, the, you know, even more impressively, he was in on electronics and synthesizers on the ground floor. I mean, there was essentially craft work and, you know, a little bit going on with synths with Prague and even Led Zeppelin and things like that. But but essentially uh, diving right into it, he was he was he was futuristic sounding, yet he was already long in the tooth at that point. Like he was already six, seven, eight years into his career. So he was in on that early. He seemed to be in on the eighties early even, right? I mean, yeah. for better or worse, you know, creating his, uh, you know, 
his uh well first let's dance which was respected but then you know your tonight's and your never let me down which are not so respected they're your sort of afterburner and uh and uh recycler albums kind of thing right but yeah even, even there come to think of it he was in in early and he he got in on the whole the whole electronica and industrial thing you know kind of right when it was happening so yeah this is a guy that uh that loved uh, art movements. He loved creativity. He was he was obsessed by following the muse. Um, but but yeah, when you love creativity and you love art and you love art movements, you do get in early. Sometimes sometimes you aren't the first in. Sometimes you're an early adopter. And sometimes when you're when you're an early adopter, you know that can turn out not so great because just like just like guys who used computer graphics in the beginning or got into computers period in the beginning um, you can spend so much of your time on on the rudimentary stuff that by the time it gets going you've kind of wasted a lot of time uh, as well so yeah it's it's funny this idea of being an early ad adopter sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't you see you look at uh, you know, bands like Devo who he was like an early proponent of and, and nearly produced their That's first right. album yeah. He wasn't like you say. He wasn't the first to discover something new, but he was the first to take something new and apply it to what he what he, what his talents were all about. And yeah. you know that's true with every. You know, I mean, he saw something in Iggy Pop that at, at that point of his career, Iggy was pretty much done. But yet David found something to pluck out of that guy and completely regenerated his career. And and again, that's one of the things about about David that just seemed to be so, so different from everybody else. It just to, to be able to identify what's, what's new. I don't want to say avant-garde necessarily, but you know, something that is so forward thinking and to be able to, to apply that. I think that's the genius of David Bowie. Yeah. That's interesting that you bring up the Iggy thing. And I, and I like the way you phrase that because also, um, noticing creative talent that isn't necessarily new or old it might be timeless and you know in that respect uh, that whole you know meeting summit uh going to new york and meeting andy warhol lou reed and iggy pop you know what he's doing is uh he's trying to fire himself up by meeting other creative people and steal a few things along the way as well but you get to the berlin period with iggy and uh, and these two guys are helping each other. They're helping each other get clean, but they're also, you know, David thinks Iggy's a great artist, and Iggy thinks David's a great artist, and and you get you get this black and white period albums uh, from both of them, and uh, and it's considered their best stuff. I mean, Iggy's best, you know, best reviewed records are Lust for Life and uh, and um, The Idiot, yeah. So and, and same with Bowie in the Berlin period. I've been watching a couple of uh, your videos with uh, Pete Pardo. And see a tranquility, and I know that that your favorite Bowie album was Scary Monsters. I'm kind of more, I'm still on the fence about which one of the, of his albums I like the most. And some days it's it's Iggy, some days it's Aladdin Sane, some days it's it's Low or Station to Station. You can point to all those records and say this is the greatest of of his career. And that period, his Berlin period. It's all collaboration with him, with with Eno and, and Tony Visconti putting together something that even to by today's standards, by today's musical advances, people still look at that trio of records and say that was perhaps the most significant thing that happened in music probably for the next decade and a half because it really introduced 
new wave and had you know shades of punk along with it those are remarkable records and and the influence of those records is is still felt yeah and, and funk it had funk as well it had guitar bass and drums but it had also like uh you know innovative synthesizer stuff it had long songs it had instrumentals um yeah i i i do love that period i think i think really scary monsters is that period even coming together uh fine i i almost would include it in that i mean they say lodger doesn't really even fit because it's supposed to supposedly kind of the switzerland period right and then and then you know scary monsters is even beyond that but but i love the fact that um that's that's a pretty hard-hitting album with um with a lot of cool production and some of my favorite Robert Fripp stuff of all time is on that, you know, teenage wildlife and all that. Um, and I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I do lean to those Berlin albums as well. I'm, I'm not a big fan of the early. Well, I, actually I'm more of a fan of the very early stuff, but I'm not a big fan of, of the glam era. And I always, I always consider like, and I always get in trouble with this, but I always consider like Ziggy Stardust kind of overrated the whole fashion look of that overrated. I mean, he, he gave a lot to fashion, but I think he didn't, he wasn't doing a good job there. I mean, I, I think, <laughs> I think it looks kind of just ridiculous and thrown together and dated and, and there's nothing about it. That's all that great. He, he gave us great, great, you know, interesting fashion ideas later, but I also get in trouble for, uh, for not really, kind of noticing or finding the magic of of mick ronson as a guitarist i yeah. mean as a as a foil and as a look and as a cool guy like he was a really nice guy as well um he was interesting but i but i i'm not really super into the guitar uh end of things at that point see to me i mean i i look at it as looking everything in in, in a certain context at the time when ziggy was coming out there was really nobody really like him and nothing in the album it would be something that would you you would dismiss him with. They'd like every song is 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 a strong song, but I actually think that from a side by side comparison, Aladdin Sane is every bit as stronger, if not stronger, than some of the songs on Ziggy. Yeah, um, but I'm I'm also a big production guy, so that's why I get really excited by the Berlin period and in the, into Scary Monsters and that as well, and and even some of the '80s things he did, and then and then later. The 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 interesting thing is that later on, you you actually get. You actually get albums later on that don't feel part of any trends, like it, like in the in the '90s and 2000s, which is which is kind of neat as well. And I'm I'm uh you know it's politically incorrect to say you're a fan of the Hours album, but I love the Hours album. You know, <laughs> it's it's so uh you know it's so melodic and acoustic and plush and well recorded and just like you know he's letting his hair down and being maybe he's being old or something at that point. But uh but I think it's uh I think that's a really you know, easy on the ears album. And, and after, you know, after things like earthling and, and, uh, you know, out, outside or outside, I guess it's called. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, those are pretty hard on the ears. Right. And even black tie, white noise, uh, to some extent, I suppose. But, uh, yeah, I, I love the hours album and I, and I love that whole ending period of what he did. I want to ask you about, uh, about black star, because, you know, to me, it's like one of these albums where, I know, I know. For me, there are certain albums that that when I hear it uh, for the very first time, it feels like it's not really a musical experience. It feels more like a gift. And Black Star was that for me because you know I mean, he died just days after it uh, it gets released, and then when you hear it, you go, "Wow, this is this is showing more of of an emotional side to him than he has ever shown before." And I, that's how it affected me. I, I for. For someone who has you know <laughs> compiled a book about his career, I'm, I'm curious to, to know what your feelings are about that final record. 
Yeah, that's that's a neat idea of it of it being a gift. I I've never really thought of it that way. Um, I love that album. Um, what I like about it is, um, I think it's actually more um more cohesive and deliberate about a direction, uh, than than you get on the next day or Heathen or some of those those later records. Um, and and it's a it's a really cool direction in that I I it always the. For, from immediate from the packaging and everything about it, the length of the songs, the the way they you know slowly royal and get going, it always reminded me of Krautrock for some reason. Mm. Um, and I I love the way that it's like conservative instrumentation, but it's done in such a such an interesting you know the Smiths are kind of like that. The Smiths are um, very conservative instrumentation, even even conservative song construction. Yet for some reason uh, they came up with something fresh and different, right? Yeah. And and Black Black Star is a little bit like that in that it's got these unknown guys. It's a little bit jazzy. It's a little bit rocky. It's just normal. It's even more conservative instrumentation because it's kind of jazzy and classical, right? Um, but but it's put together in such a cool New Yorky way that it uh, that it comes out like I say it it comes off as a sort of a Manhattan version of Krautrock. Um, which is really neat, uh, you know, and, and it's, it's neat that, that you can say, you can put a label on it that way, because I don't think you can put a label on the next day or heathen really. Well, I, I think it's interesting you say that because I mean, here's a guy that, that, that really embraced Kraut rock back 20 years before then. And this album comes out clearly, you know, he knows something that you don't know. He, he knows that his health is put him in a, in a spot where this, this is probably going to be the last you know, the last release of his, of his life. And yeah, to me, there's just, there are parts of it that are, that are so moving simply because you know what just happened. I do wonder what would have, have been the reaction had he not died and say he, he had survived, whether it would still have the same impact. Yeah. Yeah. Death and nostalgia and all that has a huge, huge impact, I'm sure. And I'm sure it had an impact on sales too. It, it, it sold way more than, than, than a normal David Bowie album of, of later years because of that. But yeah, it was universally well-reviewed. I mean, everybody loved it. Right. Yeah. And it, you know, you think about it and it was really um, dark, not sentimental. I mean, the absolute polar, polar, polar opposite would be something like Made in Heaven by Queen, which is just a bizarre, strange album about dying. And that is so greeting card and sentimental and maudlin. It's really, really like way at the other end. And yet, you know, Queen and Bowie, you can almost kind of, you know, they're both English and, you know, part of rock aristocracy. But but this record was kind of like, it was detached and urban and dark. And it wasn't, he, he like, didn't want to really talk about himself in a big way. It was just like, I'm just going to give you some more art, even though I'm in a bad place. Um, yeah, really, really interesting how, you know, and, and he didn't, he didn't sort of succumb to the idea of, um, oh, I understand and I know this and I'm, I'm well, I'm good with it because I'm mature about it. It's like, no, I'm, I'm dark because this is ticking me off that I'm dying. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it certainly takes death to a more artistic point of view. There's no, no, no question about that. I mean, listen to the uh, the podcast, History in Five Songs. Listen to a, a bunch of uh, episodes over the last uh, you know, week or two. And I really like it because it's, you know, unlike a lot of music podcasts, and, 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 and music podcasts are, have its own challenge um, because it's not like, you know, here in the States, it's not like you can actually play a lot of music in a music podcast without getting busted for licensing issues. But what I like about yours is each one clearly 
because it's a it's theme based clearly requires a level of of pre-thought and planning on your part which a lot of people really do not do to that degree and i respect that because i mean you've got this wealth of i mean you've probably forgotten more music than i will ever know but it's i mean i i respect that because it's not easy to come up with themes like that that make sense and that people can understand yeah, it's uh, so first off, I mean, that whole idea to do that sort of show, it took me like five minutes to figure out. It's like I literally just took out a piece of paper and oh, what would be a good idea? You know, OK, we've done this. We've done this. So I'll just come up with it. The other thing I wanted to do with that podcast was uh, was from the start, set it up such that um, I didn't need guests. So there's no interviewing anybody. Right. Um, so it's just like no scheduling and it's all up to me and I know exactly what's going to happen. And the other thing is. Um, you know, I didn't title it. Um, I didn't title it with something that would, uh, it reminds me of Century Media Records when Marco Barbieri said, I want to call this out, this, this absolutely raging extreme heavy metal label Century Media Records, because it sounds, it sounds really tough and strong, but it's not a heavy metal name, right? It sounds like a big business, right? So, so I wanted to, to make this such that, um, you know, I didn't have to particularly theme it to hard rock or heavy metal. So it's prog and punk and, and classic rock. Yeah. Right? It's still all dad rock of some sort, but, um, but yeah, and, and it is neat coming up with those things. They don't take me a, a ton of time. Um, you know, sometimes I panic a little bit and I have to work a little harder on it. And you, you kind of do want to have your notes ready and have a couple windows open in case something happens or, or grab the, you know, the CDs or vinyl off the rack and have it in front of you as a crutch, just in case you forget something. And I often forget stuff, but I, I never, you know, never really hit pause for anything. Yeah. Um, I just, I just blow it in. I blab for 28 minutes or 32 minutes or whatever um, and just let it go. And then where the chips fall, they they fall kind of thing. So, yeah, it's, it's fun. I haven't missed a week. I've gone 165 episodes. Haven't missed a week. I mean, you've been a, a music critic for a long time. You've done a bunch of reviews. Uh, 7,000 is what they said on Wikipedia. I don't know if that's if that's a, a, an accurate number or or whatever you've, I know you've compiled a number of, uh, of those in the, in the collector's guides. I did an interview uh, a while back with Ira Robbins from the, the trouser press. And, uh, I asked him about that because, you know, I'll, I'll, much of his career is doing just, just that music reviews. And I asked him about a couple, uh, you know, a couple of reviews that he had given. There must be examples, uh, for a guy like you, where you say, mm, maybe I should have, uh, maybe I, I would take that back or my, my view on something has softened or, or improved. Yeah. I mean, are, have there been records that in hindsight you say, you know what, maybe I like this a little bit more, or maybe I don't like this nearly as much as I thought. Oh God. The worst thing is, uh, that is some of my earliest writing ever. So I'm so embarrassed by all the writing. I mean, I did, <laughs> I did an, an indie version. Then, then it came out through a publisher. Then I started breaking it up into decades. And when I did the first one of the decades, the seventies book, I spent more time, cursing and and patching up old reviews than than if i would have just written the review from from scratch again so i kept like having to overhaul and 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 put duct tape on these reviews and like what an idiot right and and you know it i shouldn't have been that bad because when i when i did that first book i was already 30 years old i had a ba i had an mba you know i should have been able to write um but i don't think i did 
Um, so that, so that, and then also I wasn't part of the industry at all either. So I was really harsh. I, I just let it fly. Right. I mean, I, there was no, and then later on, you know, I've interviewed a lot of these guys 10, 12 times and, uh, and I'm buddies with them. And, and then I think, oh man, I hope they never see that review or that review or whatever, <laughs> right. You know, or that bank of reviews. Um, so that happens a lot. Yeah. There's, there's re-examination. Um, there's also a lot more nostalgia gets glossed onto the, you know, the seventies stuff as the decades move on and, and you like it more. There's whole bands that I didn't like back then being an angry young metalhead, like sticks, for example, we hated <laughs> sticks and lover boy and foreigner as kids. Right. But now I, I actually really like them all. Right. Uh, sort of thing. So, so that, that would have changed as well. But uh, yeah, I'd say the main thing is, is I'm just, I, I just look back on the writing in those books and, and I just hate it. Right. It's, it's just so old. Right. But yeah, so there's a seventies, eighties, nineties, and a two thousands book and the two thousands book I co-wrote with a buddy. It's the only time I co-wrote anything, but that book is 600,000 words. So wow. Each, each of us did 300,000 words, which is about four books. Um, and yeah, when you add it all up, uh, I had a publisher look into this once uh, all, all my reviews in books um, plus some reviews in, in, well, even just the books thing, I think at around 7,900 or whatever it is, I've apparently written more reviews than anybody in the history of mankind. So I should go get that. <laughs> I should try, go get a, uh, get a Guinness book. It would be, it would be neat to have a Guinness record for that at some point. And, and I actually looked into it once, but it seemed like a lot of hassle. So I did it yet. So. <laughs> As I'm digging into you, into to the research here couple albums keep popping up that i say oh my god i'm so, I, I i agree with him on that one like uh sabotage from from black sabbath is one of your your favorite records i've always thought that's my favorite black sabbath record and it's <laughs> it's funny if you go online and you do a search you know like a black sabbath you know you know best to worst it's never number one and yet right. I find that to be the most listenable of all the Black Sabbath records. Yeah, I mean, we go on various video shows and I think I, I swear to God, I think we're actually turning opinion by by saying these things over and over again on video shows or audio shows or in interviews and stuff. So I'm, I'm starting to see sabotage more. ZZ Top Rhythming, I, I swear. Yeah, I, I was talking <laughs> with a buddy the other day or a little while ago and uh We'd noticed in in a few interviews, you know, Bill, Billy Gibbons would say, oh, yeah, really, uh, really, that Rhythmine record was a special time in the 90s and stuff. And I go, you know what? Is talking with Monty Connor. I, I said to him, you know what? He's saying that because I've said that to him two or three times and I say it all the time. It's like, I swear to God, I think I changed Billy's opinion on that record. Right. And that's why he's talking about it. Right. So you get these loops going on. And then I, then I notice like I'm doing research for the podcast and I'm, I'm looking up things on Wikipedia and I'm finding my own quotes, you know, to, to, to like, uh, you know, Martin Popov says this and I, this happened in, in one the other day. It's like, well, yeah, I guess I still believe that and i that is good but i i wish i wish there was some good wikipedia stuff i can read here that i didn't write you know on, on this topic <laughs> that's that's what you that's your punishment for being so prolific yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly <laughs> so i've looked at the uh, at the uh, the martin popoff website and looked at the uh, at the book list and you know what you've written about i mean it's it's pretty varied i mean yeah, there's a lot of rock and metal and 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 prog in there and I wanted to ask you, because it looks like your second Yes 
visual biography is about to come out. Am I getting that correct? That it's that's that it's still yet to be published. The second part. No, of no, it? that's that's been out for a while. So it yeah, so so I I originally did a yes timeline and quotes book for a publisher in the UK that that has since ceased publishing and then basically my other uk publisher uh we picked up the idea of doing this and they do these big hardcover coffee table books uh with about 400 500 pictures uh, of memorabilia and live shots and stuff so we did so we busted it into two and we did a a visual biography one that ends at uh, after drama and then uh, and then a visual biography too that goes right up to to current yeah and i and i got on this weird tack of uh i really started enjoying doing these these detailed timeline books and then and then half of them are are just straight timeline but half of them are timeline and then i'm just popping in quotes all over the all over the place that that go with the thing <laughs> so out of all the books i've done i've probably done 30 that are timeline books yes is interesting because like that's you know, that's a band that like when I was in high school, that was a real big band for me. And, uh, you know, I remember the day that I was able to order the Chris Squire solo record from a, from a record store. You know, I had to order it because it was, you know, you couldn't find it anywhere at the time. And that was like a really big deal for me. And then to see them live a few times, that was a big deal. But that's a band where you know, what they have become now to me is like, it's problematic for me. Now, Steve Howe is, is, uh, traveling with a, a yes band, even though there's not a single original member of the band uh, left. And uh, to me, that that seems, I don't want to say disingenuous to me. It just doesn't seem right to do it that way. Well, I mean, what's what's your feeling about about yes as they exist now? Well, I, I think there are other worst fake examples because because yes is just an evolving lineup and most of those guys have been around for a lot lots and lots of records and you know Billy sure was an important guy they're new singers you know he's been there for two to three studio albums something like that um, so but they but the funny thing about yes is that I went and saw that Anderson uh, Wakeman uh, Anderson, Anderson, Anderson Bruford Wakeman, Wakeman and how yeah. yeah yeah that thing I was it was mind boggling how mathematical and progressive and sharp and chopsy those guys were because I saw them the same year that I saw yes. And all of the yes guys are really slowing down, but this, this Anderson Wakeman, uh, Rabin thing, they went crazy. Like they, the versions of the songs, they're like changing things up in the middle of it and adding parts and medleys and all this sort of thing. And John Anderson at 71 or 72, he's like right on top of it. And I'm, I'm like just watching all his only job up there is to sing. And I'm watching him going, how do you even remember what, what, what these maniacs are doing behind you kind of thing? So that version of yes was the yes on steroids. It was like, there was like, you know, they don't exist now, but that version was was three times as good as as the current yes at that point. But yeah, you know, I, I I'm I'm fine with the yes lineup. I'm I'm fine when these lineups just slowly change over time. And I and one of my old one of my podcast episodes was on crazy ideas, and uh, and that's that's a got a lot of really crazy ideas in it. But one of them is this idea of these evolving lineups where leonard skinner could could be around for 300 years you know as long as you change the lead singer at one point and he's 10 or 15 years younger than the other guy and it helps if you're a cousin or a brother you got the same last name and you look the same but you know as long as you change members slowly over time and they get in there on two or three studio albums you can keep rolling these things on kiss might be another one that might do this right they keep threatening to you know paul and gene keep threatening to replace themselves right yeah i so, I, I saw that this week 
Yeah. Yeah. So so if they keep doing that, you could you could do the same thing. And I think I think the Almond Brothers kind of kind of more or less did that did that over time as well. And Grateful Dead, you know, they they didn't keep the name, but they could have kept going and 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 just just kept revolving the lineup. So uh so yeah, no no the yes one doesn't seem that problematic to me because there was never any you know really uh like like harsh change where you go oh I'm not buying this change kind yeah. of thing. I know I know you mentioned Foreigner before. Foreigner is also doing that. Um, yeah, know, they're the worst. They're the worst example out there. Right without now. a doubt, Mick, Mick Jones still owns the rights to the name, but he rarely ever performs with them. And it's basically just a bunch of hired hands that have <laughs> continued to perform as Foreigner, even though none of them have ever recorded as Foreigner and none of them were ever in Foreigner at their at their height. So it, it is kind yeah. of a shameless way of of operating a band. Well, remember that uh, that glitch in the Matrix when Ricky Medlock uh, hired four young guys and called them Blackfoot, and they put out mm-hmm. an album. Like that's 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 even taking it one step further. At least <laughs> at least Mick was playing with them regularly when he did that first. But yeah, net, you know, soon soon as he's not up there on stage, you go, wow, this is great. I I went. I remember going and seeing um, Thin Lizzy in the uh, in the nineties or two thousands with John Sykes as the lead singer. You know, and he actually did a good job singing, and he, he could even sound a little like Phil. It's funny, I these guys, Rick, Ricky War, uh, Warwick as well. It's it's uh it's kind of easy to copy Phil. It's it's uh it's it's funny that way. But you know, when you when you're the lead singer and you wrote all the lyrics and half the music and all that stuff, yeah, you can't replace that guy. Yeah, you've done some podcasting conversations where you do talk about talk about punk, but you haven't. There's there's no. I don't think you've written too many books about that yet. You know, out of the Bowie experience and 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 some of the other influences that he's had on that music, I have seen you talk about you know bands like the Sex Pistols and the New York Dolls and and X. I think you, you uh, under the Big Black Sun was a big one for you. Where do you land on that genre? Obviously, you you are a fan, but I mean, has there ever been any discussion about creating your own timeline book on that? Yeah. So for the record, I've done a, a Clash book, all the albums, all the songs, where I reviewed every single Clash song, and that's probably my favorite book I've ever done. I've also done a Ramones book and coming out shortly, uh, very shortly within, uh, within a month, uh, is, uh, lively arts, the damned deconstructed where I've written reviews, analyzed every single damn song. Um, but yes, um, to answer your question, I've had on the, on the back burner and I've tinkered with it a little bit and I've got, you know, it's probably going to come to fruition. Um, I did this book called Who Invented Heavy Metal, which is 120,000 words that ends in 1971. Right. Um, I'm thinking of doing the same thing, doing a Who Invented Punk book. And again, it'll be a timeline with quotes thing, because every time I interview any punk people, I usually ask that question, who invented punk? And it's a very complicated answer. It's an interesting answer, right? Um, it's almost, you know, who invented grunge is a really interesting uh, question as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and 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 as is who invented heavy metal. But no, I, I'm a huge, huge punk fan, but my punk knowledge uh ends really. Uh I'm a I'm a old guy and I'm a punk purist. I mean, I, I actually don't know a lot about hardcore or oi or you know, LA hardcore, New York hardcore, London hardcore. My my punk knowledge uh ends when the original punk ends, which is literally halfway through 1978 almost right? right and i know a lot i know a fair bit about post-punk but even my post-punk knowledge ends at like 1983 it's interesting when you talk about you know what starts what any genre rarely just happens it, it, it's it's usually like this metamorphosis of things that that come together 
I was working uh, at a radio station years ago, and the program director hands me a copy of Nevermind by by Nirvana, and we were pl- and we were a active rock station back then, and we're playing a lot of a lot of the hair metal bands of the time, the Poisons and the Dockins and you know, uh, you know Winger and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, you know, you play Smells Like Teen Spirit, and it makes everything just seem irrelevant. When you get to that point where someone has released something that just completely clears the table. And that's happened a number of times over the years. You, you mentioned grunge, and, and even though that wasn't a long-lasting you know, genre, it did kind of clear the table in, in, a, in a lot of ways. What, what was your, your reaction to that when, when you first heard it? Did you, did you feel it was a game-changer when it came out? Oh, for sure. Well, okay. So I was living in Vancouver at the time, which is Seattle adjacent. And, um, you know, I was buying from our, our most hip record store there, Zulu records. I was buying like the, uh, the mud honey EP. Well, actually, yeah, the mud honey EP, but even the green river EP, the green river album, Nirvana bleach, Mm -hmm. the sound garden, early EP, the sound garden albums or even before, before that. So, so essentially, um, the excitement of grunge, everybody was sort of feeling it. If, if you were a deep enough music fan, you, you know, you, you'd already been into grunge for a couple of years. Um, and, and there was already the debate going on is, is this going to sweep over hair metal kind of thing? But so, so bleach, I mean, I mean, ne- never mind happens. And if I've got this right, um, I think 10 from Pearl Jam is, is a, a month or two earlier or something, but, but essentially uh, it, it felt a little bit like it, it felt a little bit like this is a great genre. A lot of people are into it. It's critically acclaimed, um, but there's gotta be a record. Everybody gathers around and agrees on kind of thing. And, and 10 and never mind were kind of like that, but you know, you know, uh, Nevermind also had the the great marketing juggernaut of Geffen behind it. And it came out, I believe it came out the same day as uh, Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 as mm-hmm. well. Um, you know, which, uh, which that was exciting too. Um, although that was essentially what I call, and I have episodes on this of my body, dirt, dirty hair metal, right? That's, that's all I call that <laughs> stuff, right? Um, so it, so it was essentially hair metal still. Um, but, but it was, um, you know, it was, it was a little more dangerous than, than the super clean stuff, but, um, but no, I mean, there was, there was, there was already a lot of product out and yeah, you know, it, it's still it's still an extreme voice um, out of Kurt. So so you've got, and, and it's still a pretty heavy album. People talk about how poppy that album is. I don't I don't consider it all that poppy. I think it's still a pretty heavy album. It's not as abrasive as Bleach is, yeah. um, but it's but it's uh, it's no it's no lighter than the Ten record. Um, that's for sure. And then Alice in Chains is heavier and Soundgarden's heavier. So all this stuff, but you're right. I mean, at the, it, it literally, you talk to all the hair metal guys and they say like overnight, um, overnight, all the attention went to Seattle. Literally the A&R people went up to Seattle to, yeah. to look for stuff. And there was a lot of stuff coming out and getting signed and everybody's hair metal deal. If it was expiring, it wasn't getting renewed. And the rec- next record was going to sell less. And I actually did a podcast episode called, um, go to Vancouver and try harder where, where every hair metal band ma- made their most ambitious album to, to at least try to survive. Right. They said, okay, enough drugs, enough drink, uh, enough short albums, enough bad productions. 
we got to get some outside songwriters and we got to make the best record we can possibly do. And so the very best hair metal albums you ever got were from 91, 92 and 93 as yeah. these guys tried, tried to survive. It's also, uh, I always thought it was very interesting too, because prior to all of that, I remember the station I was working for, all of us were kind of fans of Metallica and you couldn't get Metallica played on a radio station. You know, if you, if you held a gun to a program director's head, it was never going to happen until that, until the black album came out. And then that, you know, that changed things, but it, it was at the, around that same period where people started to look at Metallica as, okay, here's a band that's selling out arenas. They're, they're selling a, a ton of records and they're doing it without the help of radio which was at the time was almost unheard of because all these hair metal bands were relying very heavily on radio and record companies were almost exclusively marketing to either, either radio or MTV and nothing in between. Mm. But metal had this, uh, I don't know if, I mean, in a way Metallica was a catalyst that seemed to kind of benefit out of grunge had grunge, not knocked all that other stuff aside. I'm not so sure Metallica would have had its legitimacy with the black album in the same in the same way. Yeah, that's interesting. I I think I would probably disagree a little bit in that Metallica uh was was almost creating the 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 groundwork for their own success by being amazing songwriter. First of all, they invented thrash seriously like July 83. That's literally the first thrash album. You know, before that there was kind of a short-lived speed metal transition. Uh, but it wasn't that amazingly written an album the next two albums were masterpieces and everybody realized and that's why they were all excited about metallica and then justice for all is you know semi a masterpiece it's very complicated and all that so it's almost like um you know and and no other thrasher was was um sort of generating the same sort of excitement there was a fair bit of excitement around the the rest of the big four but i almost feel like that metallica album is uh is literally due to uh like like it's it's almost an isolated success and the other great thing about it is um it's almost it's it's funny every metallica fan complained about it when it happened but every metallica fan if you would have <laughs> asked them at justice would have said oh man it would be amazing if these guys wrote some slower groovier songs and and they had more of them on the album and they were shorter that would be the ultimate metallica <laughs> album and then of course they as fans think exactly like the fans this is the other thing about metallica they're such music fans only them and iron maiden had ever done that cool thing where they covered the kinds of songs that the fans wanted you to cover um so when they went into that album it's almost like the exact album that every metallica fan would have asked for Plus, it was more accessible. And, uh, you know, to, to be fair, the complaints about it were maybe half the people complained about it and half, half the Metallica fans loved it. And it wasn't, wasn't that complained about. But uh, and, it, and it also aligned a little bit with the idea, the narrative out there that um, grunge yourself up a little bit, right? Just, just get slower and more doomier. And then you're, you're, you're at least grunge adjacent if you're slower and doomier, right? Yeah. Um, so it kind of fit in with that, but, but, I, but I almost, but I almost feel like um, that's one of those exciting situations where a band is just so interesting that their success is totally due to this, this absolute tunnel that they were on themselves and they created themselves and they, and they really, and, and they, there's really no one on the outside. There's no business 
that created the success of Metallica. They did it by sheer talent. Yeah, they did, and, and they did it, like I said, in spite of a lot of things that were against them. Like I said, radio refused to even deal with them just because they were too heavy, and they and, and radio was, is such a conservative medium, especially back then where it's all about playing the hits and it's all about you know, being, uh, you know, reporting to trade magazines, all those things were important. And Metallica was like poison to them. And it was, yeah, you had, you had an extreme vocal, you had pretty extreme productions, like, like quite, you know, radical productions. And that's the other great thing about Metallica. They've, they've just, I, I did a whole episode of that of the podcast where I just looked at all the different crazy things they did in terms of the production of their records and, and how like five of them are, are, are like innovative. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. They're not just good. They're, they're different. Right. Um, which is kind of cool, but uh, yeah, that's, that's all up to them. And, and yet the grunge movement sort of, it's the sort of the same thing, but, but it's, but um, you would, you would probably have to say that um, the grunge movement as a movement of, of say four to eight bands were, were like four to eight mini versions of the Metallica story that, that it was all like, they're, they're actually really super creative and interesting but uh, you also have this uh, this kind of group narrative that you can look at it. Whereas with Metallica, it was more like you're just looking at, at this one band yeah. doing exciting things. You know, uh, Martin. Again, the uh, the book Bowie at seventy five is is uh, it's been a real joy to be thumbing through and, and reading it. It's it, it is. When I told you this is maybe the most amazing rock book I've seen, I'm I'm I really mean that. With the, the packaging, everything about this is just it's just you know perfect. Even even the fact that. You know, there's a there's a poster inside and the and the and the glossy picture of David Bowie. Congratulations on it. It's wonderful. Well, thanks very much. It's been fun chatting and there's there's more coming. I've done I've done two at fifties. I don't think I can mention either one of those yet, but I've done two at fifties for these guys as well, which are probably gonna look this great. And I, I gotta give credit to them as a company and and my my um editor over there, Dennis Pernu, who's also a huge music fan. But most of uh, anything to do with the images, which is you know frankly more important i think in these books than than my writing is um is is all due to them they do they do all that work so i've got two at 50s and i think i can mention at least one of the other ones i've done for them that i finished long i finished four other books long time ago for them um but the other one that's coming out is uh is a 50th anniversary of dark side of the moon book oh very cool i'm looking forward to whatever's coming up because uh i've become a very quick fan of your work martin so thank you very much yeah. Great. All to, right. Great to talk to you. Again. Yeah, okay. I hope so. All right. Thank you, Martin. Talk to you later. The name of Martin Popoff's book is Bowie at 75, available this month from Motor Books Publishing. You can find out more by going to martinpopoff.com. And I thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Feel free to share it, rate it, subscribe it, share it with all your friends. You can email me at bax at rock102.com. I'd love to hear what you think. And thank you for listening to Baxi's musical podcast.